1: uh, he's a senior lecturer at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, as in the Negev Desert in Israel. Uh, we're going to talk about a new class of RNA molecules, long non-coding RNA. And uh, Brock runs the Rotblat lab. So, Brock, thanks for coming. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing well. Thank you, Richard. It's bad.
1: Thank you for being here. Tell me about your research. So
2: I can tell you how I came about to do it, and maybe it'll give a bit of a flavor to it. and what I'm yeah, sure. postdoc in uh, Vancouver Uh, it was around 2010 and the people were starting to discover these uh, RNA species which keep coming up in experiments uh, based on uh, next generation sequencing and which which do not code for proteins and uh, people knew that there are there are some RNAs that don't code for proteins but the thing was that there were so many of them so many different RNAs that just don't code for proteins and, uh, and at that point, um, I, I was thinking that if there's so many of them and, and they're changing according to different biologics and so on and so forth, they must be doing something interesting. And I thought it would be very exciting to go and study what these RNAs
1: are doing. How many are known? How many non-coding RNAs are known about?
2: So people in the field can, can, have, uh, can have some debates about this, but uh, we can, I think we can safely say now that we know of about uh, 100,000.
1: Oh wow! How does this compare to DNA? You know, I know we have exons, which contain mm-hmm. the coding portions, and then we have—I um, forget—I it. think it's called the introns. I'm not sure, but the non-coding portion of our DNA is pretty extensive. How does that compare to the amount of non-coding RNA that's been discovered?
2: So, uh, so that's also a thing because uh, these kind of discoveries—they kind—they let us start thinking about how we define a gene and how we treat the genome, the sequences embedded within it. So if, if let's say, 2% of the gene, it depends depends how you define it, but let's say 2%, 10%, maximum 20% of the genome, the sequences within it eventually turn into RNA, which eventually turns into a protein. Now, uh, you can have a very large DNA sequence, which the RNA coming from it will actually be quite small because of a process called splicing. So this piece of DNA is being transcribed or copied into RNA. And then there are a bunch of proteins who bind this RNA and and manipulate it in ways which remove some sequences and stitches, like cut and paste mechanisms, which remove sequences and stitches back to the rest. These are called exons. They leave the nucleus and eventually are translated into protein. So if you think that we have about 20,000 genes in the genome, which is about 2% of the genome, which, which their products are actually these RNAs, which turn into proteins, then you can think about the rest of the genome or maybe 90% of the genome, which is typed into RNA. And this RNA is being spliced just as if it's a protein code. But actually they don't code into proteins or maybe, and that's what we think.
1: <laughs> so there's no one-to-one correlation of the amount of non-coding DNA and the amount of non-coding RNA.
2: No, it's not one-to-one correlation. And now we know that these, these long non coding RNAs, they, they are genes just as ones which are eventually translated into proteins. So the structures they have sequences which tell them when to turn on or off. These are called promoters and enhancers. And then they go all this processing, which we discussed, which is splicing and other RNA processes. So these long non coding RNAs, they actually look like a normal gene and they behave like a normal gene probably going through Darwin selection like a normal gene, um, except that the function is defined in the RNA molecule itself rather than the protein, which is being translated from the RNA.
1: Where do these RNAs come from? Do you think they could be trafficked through uh, extracellular vesicles from other cells? Or do you think that, you know, if you have a virus that enters a cell, an RNA virus, what's the difference between that and a long, non, you know, a long piece of RNA that's in the cell? Like, where do all the these so, long non-coding RNAs come from, do you think?
2: So, first of all, they're encoded in our genome. So there are promoters, which which are sequences within within our genome, which binds proteins, which actually synthesize the RNA. And these promoters tell genes, also so proteins want to turn on or off. So these long non-coding RNAs, they basically function the same. So uh, they're not necessarily uptaken. A cell can, can uptake nothing, and still they will have, it will make all these long non-coding RNAs. And what is interesting, there are two interesting features in these long RNAs when you compare them to, the, let's say, the canonical regular RNAs, which we used to. One feature is that they're not very much conserved in evolution. So if you look at, a, let's say, a worm, right, like C. elegans, uh, will have 20,000 genes and coding to proteins. We as humans have 20,000 coding to proteins and many of the genes found in worms, there is something quite similar in, in the human genome. However, when you look at long non-coding RNA, then see how elegance has, uh, has a few hundreds, maybe a few thousand. But in our genome, there are 100,000 hundred or yeah, at least tens, tens of thousands of genes whose products are long non-coding RNA. So the, the repertoire of, of, non- of genes whose products are coding RNA has expanded to evolution uh, very rapidly uh, as compared to uh, uh, protein coding genes. So this is one feature which makes them quite interesting. And if we take another example, a mouse, which is another uh, model organism, which is a mammal uh, like us, if you look at the genome of a mouse and a human, it's very similar. So if you look at the, at the protein-coding genes, we're, we're 90% identical. But if you look at the long non coding RNA, humans uh, and also primates, we have, uh, we have two times more genes who code for long non coding RNAs as compared to mouse. So demonstrating, again, the expansion in evolution, of this class of genes, which I think is, is an interesting uh, angle to think of how, how uh, nature has increased complexity very quickly. So I think it's perhaps by expanding uh, the number of these genes. And the question is, how does a long how non coding RNA gene is born? It's a question which people are studying. And I think one of the, um, the leading ideas in the field is that uh, there are transposons. So these are uh, sequences in our genome, which can uh, jump around. And, and they, they will, uh, will jump somewhere and bring a, a promoter with them, which means that this piece of DNA, perhaps it was a gene desert, now is being transcribed into RNA. And if this RNA happens to acquire a function, then it will be maintained by evolution and, and so on and so forth. So this is one of the ideas.
1: What do you think the function of these long non coding RNAs is?
2: From the tens of thousands of long-term coding RNA, there are only, let's say, a couple of hundred who have been rigorously studied functionally. And uh, these, these studies are not so simple um, for two reasons. So one reason is that if we, if we let's say, I pick, a, I find the gene, interesting gene in cancer, which is the system we're working on, and it's a protein coding gene, I can look at the sequence and from the sequence I can, I can know what is the sequence of the protein which encodes. And then I can look at other proteins, which are similar to it in, in sequence and, and most likely in structure, what going, doing, and it can give me a good edge to start studying this, this new gene. So for example, if this new gene will give product to a, to a metabolic enzyme, and, and it's very similar to a metabolic enzyme that exists in yeast, and we know that in yeast, this thing breaks down this and that compound, then I can start by the study of this new gene, by asking, well, perhaps it's doing something similar. Now, with the long non-coding RNA, because by definition they do not code for proteins, then when we look at the sequence of the long non-coding RNA, there is very little information uh, regarding uh, what it might do. So, one way to go to go in, about studying long non-coding RNAs is, is to start from a disease. So, we, for example, studying cancer. And if we find the gene which is, for example, very high, very active in, in tumors and not so much in, in normal tissue, then we can start asking, OK, perhaps this, this gene, which in our case would be long line, perhaps this long line coding RNA has a function in this system. So uh, we do what we, what we do in the lab, which is to manipulate the genome of, of tumor cells and other cells, and for example, remove this long line coding RNA gene and then ask, you know, so what is happening to this cell? If it's a if it's a cancer cell line, then perhaps we would go and asking things which are related to cancer. So does this cell proliferate more, grow more? Does it does it migrate more? Does it invade more? Is it now more or less resistant to chemotherapy? And and this this is the kind of directions uh, we like to take because I I think it would be very challenging to just pick a random long non-coding RNA and try to study it without having like some kind of biological hook about what it's doing.
1: Before we continue. the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, is the name even accurate? Do we know that these non-coding RNAs is just, I mean, if they're non coding, what do they do? And the ones that have been studied, what is, what's been learned about them? What kind of things do they do?
2: Regarding uh, long line coding RNA, so we, we define them by what they're not. Right? The definition is by what they're not. This is always a funny definition. Um, so they're not coding for proteins, okay? But do they not code for proteins? And and the, the idea that they do not code for proteins comes from from several observations. So one observation is that if you had a ra- if you take a random piece of RNA and it is long enough, it has let's say a few thousand base pairs. Just by chance, you will have an ATG come along, like these three base pairs, which which symbolize the start of a translated protein. And then you'll have three more, the next three, and the next three, and the next three will be uh, also different base pairs, which eventually represent some kind of amino acids, which are synthesized into a protein. And then you'll have a stop. This I'm saying just by chance, just by, if you take A, C, T, and G, or U in the case of RNA, and and you mix them up and you make a sequence, just by chance you'll you'll get what is called an open reading frame. the sequences that, that, that basically define the genetic code of the protein. And, and if you have an RNA, which, which, does, which has a coding sequence on it, and it's longer than what you expect to find by chance, then we defined it as a long non coding RNA. So who said that they're not small sequences or not small proteins encoded in long RNAs? Well, apparently there are, and we'll get to that in a minute. So this is one observation. The second observation was that when people did studies such as polysome profile, where you ask, doing translation, the, where does the ribosome sit on the RNA? And basically what you find is that there are a lot of ribosomes sitting on the region of the RNA that is coding, that has a coding sequence, and then the ribosomes drop off the RNA when they reach the stop codon. So if you if you do this kind of ribosome profiling, you can actually map what is being translated on an RNA. Now, when you look at the... At the normal protein-coding RNA, you see that the ribosomes, there's a peak of ribosomes at the, at the start, and then it occupies the sequence, and then the peak drops at the stop. So in long non coding RNA, often you find that this is not the case. So the ribosomes seem to be scattered randomly on the RNA, and, and this second observation is, is also helped define, helped push the, the idea that these long non coding RNAs do not code for protein
1: kind of like junk dna i mean why would there be so much of it if it does nothing it makes no sense but go ahead
2: yeah it's a perfect comment because we're an undergrad and i was studying biology and they told us about junk dna and uh, basically referring to there there were some ideas like it's a backup for evolution It's it's there's a lower chance that actually the damage will hit an important spot and so on what this junk is doing but actually this junk uh, is is being transcribed to RNA and many of these RNAs are long encoding coding RNAs which are active. Now the reason why when I was an undergrad we thought this junk DNA is not being transcribed is because of the technology. So the technology before if you wanted to ask what RNA is in a cell you'd have to make a bunch of probes and use these probes to to fish out the RNAs and ask okay throw them out as fish hooks and see if you catch any fish. If 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 any RNA sticks to these probes, which will basically report that this this RNA exists in the cell. So you have to know, ask for. Now, in the new sequencing technology, I'm calling it new, it's not so new anymore, but still, what we do is we take all the RNA and we stick it in a machine and we get the results in the email, which basically unbiasedly all the RNA that there is in the tissue or in the sample that, that we put in the machine. We started doing these kinds of experiments and not asking, is my... My favorite RNA there, but rather asking what RNA is there. That is where we found all these RNAs.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And basically what they do, at least from what we know now,
2: is the the regulators. So they have regulatory functions. Um, I would say the regulatory function is, of course, a very... uh, naive way to describe what a gene is doing, but let's say we can define some genes they have structural functions, for example, the one that builds the cytoskeleton. Some uh, will have metabolic functions, for example, an enzyme that breaks. And some are regulators, which basically means they they, the genes whose products, whose protein products they, for example, they would bind one protein, an enzyme, and turn it on or off, or they they would bind the protein and modify it, and then it will, it will form the scaffold and so on and so forth. So the, what these RNAs are doing, they're binding the genome, so they're binding our DNA, they're binding other RNAs, and they're binding proteins and regulating their activity. So for example, they can, they can bind a promoter region of a gene and turn it on or off. Or for example, they can, they can bind one protein with one region of the RNA and another protein with another region of RNA and form a complex I mean, the classical RNA protein complex is the ribosome, of course, but now we know that there are many complexes in the cell which which are very dynamic, not so stable like the ribosome, and, and they're regulated uh, by RNA. So so these long-and-coding RNAs, they're, they're actually quite fascinating in the sense that they're, they're having so many regulatory functions, and we, if we think about it in a more theoretical or philosophical way, we can think that the expansion of these of these Long non-coding RNAs in evolution is, is supporting the, the, the increase in complexity, because basically in in increasing biological complexity is, is very much achieved by having a more and more sophisticated regulation, especially over gene expression.
1: How would you compare the regulatory ability of these long non-coding RNAs versus epigenetic marks versus methylation, you know, uh, histone modification, etc.?
2: It's a great question because we know, for example, we know what enzymes, they methylate uh, CPGI, right? If you take this enzyme, if you purify it in a tube and you add a piece of DNA and it has a CPG on it, it will methylate it, right? And this usually is epigenetic marks of, of gene silencing. We have histone modifications. So the enzymes, if you, if you purify the enzyme in a tube and you put histones in there, it will methylate it or acetylate it or do any other you know, many other modi- types of modifications you can get. But the question that we're still trying to understand and figure out is how this enzyme know where to go in the genome and do their job. So how does the, the enzyme which methylates a, a particular histone, of a particular gene, know to methylate that histone of that gene? Because presumably it's floating around in the nucleus and it's meeting many histones. And, and how does it know where to go? And, and this biological question is fascinating. Of course, it's a, it's a very vivid an exciting field, uh, the epigenetics and, and gene regulation, gene expression regulation, very, very exciting field. And people are doing great work. And one of the ideas in, the, in, this, uh, in this field is that perhaps uh, these long encoding RNAs, this is their function. So you can imagine a long-line coding RNA, which on, on the one side of it, it grabs an enzyme, which can modify histone. On the other uh, end of it, by complementation, it binds to a specific. Specific region of the genome, and there you go, and you have the enzyme brought to a specific region of the genome. Now that I think of it, it's very, very much like how it works. But <laughs> this is one of the ideas of, of how these long non coding RNAs are actually linked to epigenetic
1: regulation. So are these, um, are they the architects of epigenetic marks? Do they facilitate the uh, the adding or removal of marks? Is that what you're saying? It,
2: that's what I'm saying, and um, you know, this is a very general uh, saying, and in biology, of course, you always have to be careful because we know only what we know. <laughs> but I think th- th- there are evidence, there are long non coding RNAs that have been thoroughly studied and have been shown to bind proteins which modify heels, for example, and, and, and bring them to specific regions of the genome where they do their job. Another interesting feature of these long non coding RNA is, is their lo- location within the genome and how they function in cis. So you can imagine a region of the genome where RNA is being transcribed from it. This changes the, the biophysical property of that region of the genome. There's a lot of discussion about phase separation. And, and I don't know if this is exactly the uh, uh, same thing, but you can imagine that there is now a molecule of RNA in a region of the genome where there was not. And if you have proteins which have affinity to RNA, they, they, their, concent- their effective concentration in that region of the genome. And then just by being transcribed, these RNAs have been shown to regulate the, their neighbors, basically the expression of their gene neighbors. And, and one very nice uh, and, and paper that was published and what they showed was that there's this gene very important in heart development in mouse um, and called hand two. And it has a neighbor, which is a long non coding RNA called upper hand. And what they did was that if they deleted upper hand and, and they... they stopped its transcription basically, then, then the, the, the next door neighbor didn't function and, and there was a defect in the, in the development of the heart of the, in mice. But if they swap the sequence from the long encoding RNA sequence that was there to another sequence, in this case, it, it was a protein coding sequence, it was still functional. So in, in this case, we have a, a long non coding RNA that is transcribed from a specific region of the genome whose job is to regulate the neighbor just by being transcribed and it's duly independent of its uh, sequence. And this is, again, the challenge of studying these RNAs because there's not much uh, functional uh, information embedded in their sequences.
1: How can you tell that there's a certain number of different kinds? Like, what does the processing look like to discover, you know, the isolation, the separation, and the processing of a sample to find these non RNAs? How do you know that you've got one, but it's not chopped up fragments from other pieces of uh, genetic material?
2: Oh, so, so the, the way we do it, the, there are several ways. So in, in this regard, it won't be different than studying any other kind of RNA, let's say protein-coding RNA. There too, you're you always, when you do experiments like real-time PCR, experiments which which allow you basically to quantify how much of, of this specific RNA, um, you, you always have this challenge of, of saying, how do I know that I don't have contamination? So, so, so there are several ways uh, to, Control and one of the popular ways is to, to just extract total RNA from the cell or from your tissue, for example, with trizol, and then you, you treat the sample with DNAs. So it's an enzyme which chops up DNA, and then you remove the DNA, the DNA, and, and you, you continue on with the processing of the RNA. So even if you have some leftover DNA, you, you just get rid of it. So it's, it's this, I don't think, is a big challenge in the field. What is an interesting challenge is that this, the localization of these long-land coding RNAs very much can for their function. So for example, their long-land coding RNAs will function in the nucleus and they bind to chromatin. So you can, and people have done this, they isolated chromatin and used RNA sequencing to see which RNAs are bound to the chromatin. So they found some long-land coding RNAs and later they discovered that these long non coding RNAs have a function in, in binding the genome. Uh, for example, reg- regulating the epigenetic landscape. Another, uh, there's some long non coding RNAs who bind, bind to proteins and RNA in the cytosol and regulate function. So w- one, and people have done this too, they isolate cytosolic uh, uh, RNA right, and, and dispose of the nuclear and the mitochondrial and membrane-bound RNAs. And, and then they, they sequence it and they see what's there. So they find some long non coding RNAs which are there. And then you can, you can ask the question, what are they doing there? Who are they binding? And, and so forth.
1: A lot of different possibilities. Yes. <laughs> what is your research to just slowly attempt to characterize the function of the rest of the thousands of long, long non-coding RNAs? Or like what's your focus right now?
2: So basically what, what we do is we look, we look at, we think about some ideas which we're interested in, for example, long non-coding RNA. And then we look for clinical relevance because we, we study cancer biology. This is also our, our biological model. And so we look at cancer data where people have taken tumors and sequenced the, the gene expression or sequence of the RNA is there, and we look to see if there's any indication that the gene we're interested in, or we rank the genes which are let's say the most interesting to the least interesting, based on their clinical characteristic. For example, uh, we worked on one long non-coding RNA, which is called TP73 antisense one, and from here forth I'll call it just the antisense. So we saw that that. The reason why we, why we were interested in this gene is because it's a neighbor of a transcription factor called P73, a member of the P53 family. So when I was in uh, doing my postdoc in Jerry Melino's lab in the MLC uh, toxicology unit in Leicester, I, I said to Jerry, look, there's a long coding RNA next to our favorite transcription factor. And, and, and you know, we, we got really excited to see if, if it might be regulating its neighbor. It was very early days of long-term coding RNA. And we did some basic experiments, and and they look very promising. So we, and then we went to the the clinical data. And what we found was that it is really highly expressed in in brain tumors versus normal brain. And and this is already an indication. Now, in in this case, we don't know if the gene does anything, but there is a chance that it's important in this disease. Um, What we also found is that if you take patients whose RNA was was profiled in tumors, and you divide them into two groups, one which have high activity of this gene and one which have low activity of the gene, and you draw their survival, you see that the ones, the group that has high activity of this gene, they, they survive less. So taking these two indications, we said, okay, it's clinically relevant. So it, it might be doing something important. And then we went ahead to study it by, by uh, doing basically gene manipulation, knocking it down and seeing what happens to the cell. And um, my, stu- uh, my, my first student in the lab, that was her project, and she was working on what it does in a specific type of uh, brain tumor cells, which are called uh, cancer stem cells and, um, and it was very disappointing because basically it did nothing and um, We thought this is okay, I mean some things are expressed in cancer, but do nothing. this can happen but then she she asked to do one more experiment and to try to see how they how they behave under chemotherapy, because she said all the patients with this kind of brain cancer, it's called glioblastoma, they, they go through the same chemotherapy. And if this gene were to be involved in the response of the tumor to chemo, then it can explain why patients with high expression, they have poor survival. Perhaps they, they are more, the, the tumor is more resistant to, to the chemo. So she tried the experiment and it worked. So this, was the, this is the function of this gene. And we tried to understand how it's doing so. And we saw that it regulates the expression of many, many genes. Many metabolic genes, but one of them is—it's uh, uh, an aldehyde dehydrogenase. So this gene is basically the, this, the product of this gene is a protein which breaks down alcohol in our liver. And when when she gave so there's this drug they give to alcoholics which blocks this enzyme. So they take one shot and they have get a, an instant hangover. And uh, she gave this to the cells and and they lost uh, the protection. So. Basically, we think that the function of this gene is to regulate the expression of uh, detox enzymes. And this is why the, the brain tumor cells, they, they like to have a lot of it.
1: Is your goal, again, to catalog the function of all the non-coding RNAs out there? Or what's your, I mean, what are your specific goals for your lab? Uh,
2: I don't think I, I'm not really into this doing very high throughput. I just want to, to more cherry pick some which is uh, interesting and, and drill down and try to understand it uh, in, a, in a deep way so
1: quick question are you guys looking to see if um these long non-coding rnas are ending up being packaged inside of extracellular vesicles is there any investigation into that and characterization now that we know that they exist do they show up as cargo in these things
2: yeah they show up as cargo and and it has been shown that they they can be um, uptaken by cells and and be functional by the in the cells which uptook them yes this has been shown this is not our uh, line of investigation, but yes,
1: it's known. Well, it's just interesting. It gives another, if you're studying particular ones that you find interesting, mm-hmm. you, know, I, you may also want to look into see if those specific ones you're interested in end up being packaged into these, you know, these exosomes or extracellular vesicles. And if so, do they serve the same function in the cell that creates them as in the recipient cell that takes them in? Just another nuance to their action, possibly.
2: Yeah, that would be really interesting. And now that I think of it, it can be interesting also in the, in the sense of the tumor microenvironment because, of course, you have a lot of communications between the tumor cells and the normal tissue around it, or it's not really normal anymore. The tumor cells, they, they change it, uh, and uh, epithelial cells and, and uh, immune cells which come there. And, uh, yeah, it can, be, it can be interesting to see what, for example, an immune cell would, which presumably might uptake, Long non-coding RNA, how will, it react perhaps to chemo. That's interesting. I don't know if they're being extruded from the cells, but, but it will be interesting to
1: check. You said earlier that these non-coding RNA will literally have multiple ribosomes bonded to them, like an entire ribosome. Uh,
2: sometimes they will have, uh, yes, yeah, sometimes they will have uh, many ribosomes attached to them, yes. So, yeah. And the funny thing, thing is that they have many ribosomes attached to them, but because of the profile that it doesn't go up near the ATG code and down near the stop codon, then people have assumed that they're not being translated. Um, But uh, there is a paper uh, that came out, uh, I think, a couple of months ago from uh, the group of Jonathan Weitzman, and and they asked this question. So are these long non-coding RNAs really non-coding? And they did a, a very thorough investigation of ribosome profiling, and they actually found short coding sequences within some. I would say I, I don't remember the numbers, but maybe I don't know five percent, but I'm not sure. Some of these uh, long non-coding RNAs, and actually they collaborated with another group, uh, I think in Max Planck of Matthias Mann, and they found by sequencing by, by mass spec over tissue they found these these small proteins actually in the tissue. So these RNAs have the profile as if they're being uh, translated and there's peptides or, or proteins which are, which are corresponding to the sequences. And then they went ahead and, and, they, and they confirmed, I think, two of them, which they showed that they're actually biological function. They have a biological function. So when I saw this paper, I said to my student, her name is Gal. Gal, why don't you look in their data and see if our long non coding RNA is there? And it is. So now we have a, we're very excited to see if this uh, small protein, which is encoded in our long non-coding RNA, is functional and perhaps it also plays a role in what this gene is doing. So this is a new project in the lab, and uh, and we're excited by it. And another interesting aspect of this sorry of this uh, long non-coding RNA is that it is in the, conserved in in monkeys, but only uh, uh, old world monkeys. So new world monkeys and let's say down in evolution. Um, it does not exist. So it can, it can be interesting if it has a function in the brain, which this gene is normally usually more highly expressed than other organs, then maybe this small protein is involved in, in our brain. But you know, this is speculation.
1: Yeah, I'm just curious about viruses. If, again, if you have an RNA virus, and I, I don't think you'd have the answer to this question, but for people that do work on viruses, it'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, what if a, uh, a long string from a virus enters a cell and then ribosomes attach attached to it? You know, I wonder if it acts at all like a non-coding RNA and if this just <laughs> sheds more light on what could happen to, for instance, viral material that enters a cell. You know, from, you, from what you study, I just wonder if there's any correlators and any other additional knowledge to be gained.
2: So I think a lot of these technologies uh, and, and these, these biological principles, they actually come from viruses because uh, the, other, the virus will, will sort of, in uh, very sim- simplistic terms, inject its RNA into our cells. And actually, our ribosomes will bind this RNA and turn it into a protein. And this is how we make, how our cells make more virus. And, and what is interesting in, in, in virus...
1: I remember you spoke about the patterning of how the ribosomes will bind to a particular piece of RNA. And you mentioned with the non-coding ones that it appears that there's random binding. But with other RNAs, there's appears to be deliberate structured binding. So I wonder if people could evaluate, again, viral RNA that enters a cell and see the structured or unstructured binding of our of uh, ribosomes.
2: So in viruses, we know uh, what it is uh, the the type of binding. Let's say, and it's it's very structured. Actually, it's it's the viruses. They're so good at, at exploiting our own ribosomes. I think sometimes they're more efficiently translated than our own genes. So uh, this this actually wow. uh, this has been without yes. And what is also interesting is that they, they can have multiples, multiple proteins coming from the same RNA sequence. And, uh, and this is all, also very exciting because you can imagine that there's an ATG and then three, three, three codons and, three, uh, and the next codon, which is three bases and three bases and three bases, and this will make the protein. Now ma- imagine at some point, there's another ATG, which is frame shift. So it's not, the three base, it's not going by three with the first ATG. And then it has the next, the, the other part of the sequence will be a totally different protein. So viruses exploit a few open reading frames in one RNA to make a few proteins. And they're super efficient. Actually, we we don't do that. Our own genome, our own RNA does not do that. But viruses, they're like the, the acrobats of RNA and, and how to exploit our own system.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. So people have done profiling of, again, viruses once they're inside a cell and they look at the arrangement or placement of the ribosomes. And does that give them any clue as to, I don't know, how our, our own RNA what makes it def- what, what makes an RNA acrobatic as you said or efficient or non-efficient like what I don't know does this give you any insight into depending on the sequence of a, a piece of RNA the functionality comes from there is there an underlying language or code that can be figured out based on you know the binding of the ribosomes where they bind how they bind etc do they do they bind and then come off and then rebind in different spots I mean has any of that been observed?
2: Yes, so this has been observed. Usually, what they do is they bind, and then something happens, which is basically a tRNA comes in and protein is being is being generated, and then they move to the next three. So we profile the footprints of the ribosome and see that this, this actually occurs by, by three. There's this periodicity. The basically, what your question asking is the way I see it is like is is the question of how does a protein how does a cell decide which RNA to turn into protein. And this is another side of investigation that we have in our lab. So the observation is this: according to to your question, it is exactly this that when we do ribosome filing, we see that not all RNAs are made equal, which means. And then, and then people in the field they they made this kind of uh, of term, which is called translation efficiency which means some RNAs they will make a lot of protein so each RNA there's a lot of protein being made from a lot of many molecules many copies of the protein from one RNA and some RNAs they have low translation efficiency so from this RNA only a few of these proteins will be made a few copies of the proteins are made so and then the question was okay is this important and if it is important what are the rules governing governing it and and this is also a question we, we like to ask in our lab and why, why do we ask this question? Because we see, this is uh, not about cancer so much, it's more about, uh, not about viruses so much, it's more about cancer. But we see in cancer that these mechanisms of select which RNAs to make into proteins are, are very, important. and uh, one, of this, uh, one of the cellular pathways which regulate this is called the mTOR pathway. So mTOR is a protein, and which which receives a lot of signals regarding the energetic state of the cell, and then activates or turns off or shuts, shuts off or turns on cellular processes which consume a lot of energy. So, for example, when we have a lot of a lot of energy and mTOR is active, it will signal to the ribosomes make a lot of protein. And when energy goes down, uh, mTOR will will signal to the ribosomes don't make a lot of protein. So this way, our cells, they, they use this, this regulatory mechanism in order to fine-tune how much protein they make. Now, what is interesting, when people use this technique, such as ribosome profiling, and see what happens, what they found was that, again, not all RNAs are made equal. So when mTOR is, is signaling to, let's say, translation shut off, so don't make a lot of proteins, um, actually, some proteins, are, some RNAs are actually being translated more efficiently than they were before this uh, shut-off signal. And, and then we see that the proteins which are, which are encoded in these RNAs, there are proteins which are very important to for the cell to deal with the stress. So this makes evolutionary sense.
1: Well, I was going to say, what, where do you think the, um, what's governing the, uh, the translation? It's not just the attachment of the ribosomes, but internally in the ribosome itself, is it complicated enough structure where it can still attach at a certain point, but then still affects so, the translation, mm-hmm. even though... It's not just by location, but maybe internal action of the ribosome that also is another factor that governs translation or not.
2: For example, uh, the ribosome is, let's say, 80% RNA and 20% protein. So the huge RNA structure with many proteins decorating it. When you look at at different tissues or different biological conditions, you see the position of the ribosomes can change. So some, some ribosomes will have... BCD attached to them and some ribosomes will have protein BCDE attached to them. So these two ribosomes, if you give them a piece of RNA in a tube, they will synthesize the protein from this RNA, they're, they're functional. But we think that perhaps the different compositions of ribosomes will allow it to translate more efficiently different sequences of RNA. This has not been proven, but uh, this, is, this is an idea in the field and people are uh, asking the question. What we are more interested in is that a lot of uh, the regulation of which RNA will be actually translated into proteins occurs at a step which is called initiation. So what happens is you have a born, let's say, and going to the cytosome, and now there are a bunch of protein binding to it. And their job is to prepare it so as the ribosomes can can attach to them efficiently and translate. And when there is a signal, let's say that there's a lot of energy in the cell and uh, everything is fine. Then, then these proteins will, will attach to this uh, and, and, and unwind, strike it and so on, and prepare it for the ribosome to work. The, when energy drops and mTOR is inactive, the composition of this complex in the newborn RNA changes. And there are not these proteins there already to unwind the tangles and to allow the ribosomes to attach to it efficiently and be translated. So you can imagine a scenario where an RNA, which is more, let's say, tangled up, will be more dependent on the mechanism of unwinding than an RNA, which has a more, let's say, simple structure for the ribosome to recognize it and and translate it. So perhaps under, for example, stress conditions, uh, when you need the, when when there's scarcity of these unwinding proteins, the the more complex RNA-structured RNAs will be less well, less efficiently translated. So this is this is something uh, we're working on because we think the proteins regulating this, this transition from uh, having the complex which unwinds everything to ha- having it inhibited, I think is uh, very important in cancer and the proteins regulating this function are very important for the tumor cell to survive uh, in the metabol- harsh metabolic conditions inside the tumor.
1: Very good. Well, what do you see as uh, you figuring out in the next year or two? Anything getting close? Any hypotheses that you're... Uh... You know, you're testing and you're close to having a breakthrough on?
2: Uh, this idea of uh, working on proteins which basically regulate which proteins are being made in the cell within, uh, in cancer. So this is a work I'm doing with in, the in, in collaboration with uh, another lab in uh, in Germany, of Gab- led by Gabrielle Privia. He's a friend of mine. We did the postdoc together. And um, this idea we're very excited about and, and we hope that we'll have it will very soon. Because what we found is a protein whose job is to inhibit translation or slow down translation. And we found that the cancer cells are very much dependent on it. And it's because you think about cancer cells—they want to grow very fast and they want to make a lot of proteins to allow this to support this growth. And why would a protein whose job is to inhibit or to reduce protein synthesis would actually be important? So what we think it does is it changes the. It allows the cells to down at times where there's a, a glucose deprivation. So when the cell doesn't have enough glucose and tumor cells, they love glucose. And, um, and if, they, if, if tumor cells, they don't have this protein, they cannot, they cannot stop uh, making fat and doing all the energy consuming things that they like to do when there's a lot of energy. And they keep on doing it even in, in times of starvation. And then they basically burn themselves out. So uh, we're very excited by this and uh, hopefully it will be published soon.
1: Very good. Well, Barack, where can people find out your lab page? What's the address? And where can they uh, see more of what you're doing?
2: You can Google uh, Barack Rotblatt or you can, um, yeah, just Google Barack Rotblatt lab and you'll find it. I'm on Twitter, so you can find me there.
1: So it's B-A-R-A-K and then last name R-O-T-B-L-A-T. Very good. Well, Barack, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Rich. It was a pleasure. If you like this podcast,